Thank you, ladies, very much for honoring the Lord that way. We began yesterday morning with seeing that God is a person, a real person who is affected by our behavior. We see that right through the word of God. He's either grieved or he's pleased. And then last night we saw his autobiography. The Lord descended in a cloud. There's always a mystery about God. He stood with Moses on that mount. And he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. The next phrase we didn't deal with last night. It says, Slow to anger. Slow to anger. He's long-suffering. He remembers that we're the dust of the earth. He knows our condition. And so he's very, very patient and long-suffering to give us opportunity to repent. And we see that when he deals with the nation of Israel and Judah, both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He was so slow to anger. It was about 200 years that he sent prophets to warn them, to caution them. And through Isaiah, he said, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. He was going to sin judgment unless they repented. But he was very slow to sin judgment. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger. And the reason is, is because of his profound love. And yet he is just. And there comes a time we see in the scriptures when the cup of his wrath is filled up. I have wondered how long it will be before the cup of his wrath is filled up regarding the United States. With all the abortions, with all the immorality, with all the greed. When will the time come when his cup of wrath is filled up? And what we see in the word of God is once the cup of his wrath is filled up. It will not change. In one place, he says, even if Moses or Elijah prayed, I would not listen. When God says that is enough, he drops the hammer of judgment. But he's slow to anger. He abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. We'll see that more of that tomorrow night. But he abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now tonight we look at another aspect of God which to me is very stunning. You see, Jesus said in this is eternal life that they might know you. 
Paul said, I want to know him. Dr. J.I. Packer wrote a book 30 year, 30, more than 30 years ago called Knowing God. And in that book, Dr. J.I. Packer says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set ourselves in life? To know God. What is eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life? Bringing more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else. Knowledge of God. As I mentioned yesterday, I'm Southern Baptist. I went to a Baptist university. I went to two of our Baptist seminaries. I trained in pastoral counseling at one of our Baptist hospitals. I've always been in Southern Baptist churches, but I want to tell you something. We've done very poorly in teaching people that salvation is not just to get us to heaven. God wants us to know him. This is our greatest privilege, our greatest blessing. To know God. Not just to escape hell and get to heaven. And I wonder tonight if this has been made the aim of your life. The Apostle Paul had seen the miracles by his own hands, God working with him. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He had been trained by the Lord Jesus in the Arabian desert for about three years, one-on-one. That's the best seminary in the world. And yet in Philippians chapter 3, this is what he says, I want to know Him. I want to know Him. And the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. His heart passion was to know the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and more intimately and to make him known. And I wonder how many sitting here tonight and how many sitting in our Baptist churches Sunday after Sunday after Sunday on Sunday morning, I wonder how many of us have said, my goal is I want to know him. I want to love Him. And I want to please Him. And you see, anybody who has that as their heart, he is delighted to reveal himself. He is delighted to make himself known. And dear brother and sister, I don't know how long you may have been saved, But if you have never made that your ambition and your aim, that I want to know the Lord Jesus Christ as deeply and intimately as I possibly can, this side of heaven, and I want to please Him in everything, 
If you've not made that your goal, I would say to you, you're stagnant. And I would encourage you tonight or tomorrow night or the next night sometime, settle it with God. The supreme aim and delight of my life will be to know the Lord Jesus Christ with ever-growing intimacy. You will not grow spiritually unless you do. And dear folks, I want to tell you something. I said to my wife the other day, I want to live my life in such a way that I'm constantly laying up treasure in heaven. The pleasures of this world are such a brief time. We live in a time capsule. But the day is coming when I will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and so will you. And He will judge my life. And the fruit I lay up now, I will enjoy forever and ever and ever. And if my purpose in life now is to have all the pleasure I can have now, I will miss it in heaven forever and ever. But if I make my goal now, I want to please you in all things. I want to know you increasingly with intimacy and enjoy you to the maximum while I live on earth. Then when that time comes and I stand before him, the pleasures of this life will have passed away. But the reward of knowing Him, enjoying Him, glorifying Him, and pleasing Him, I will live with forever and ever. When Peter comes to the end of his letter, he says, Grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in the knowledge of Christ. Grow in the grace of Christ. That's what we should be after day after day. The purpose of the Word of God is not that I can just learn more and more Bible. The purpose of the Word of God is so that I can know Him. The purpose of every trial and tribulation and sorrow and heartache that's come to your life is so that you can know Him. Everything in your life is so that you can know Him. And God uses everything in your life. But if we sit here or walk on this earth and we don't make deliberate choices, I want to know you in this hardship. I want to know you in this experience. I want to know you in this pain. I want to know you in this joy and this blessing. If we don't make it our goal to know Him in everything of life, we have shortchanged ourselves. And that day will come when we will stand before Him. And we will realize we have missed what God intended. And so I encourage you, set your heart, set your heart, set your heart. And that's a deliberate choice. And folks, I, I've been a pastor for over 50 years. I want to tell you something. The problem in most of our Baptist churches and other evangelical churches is we come to church, we sit there, we hear the pastor speak, and we go out and we do nothing about it. We hear we ought to pray, but it doesn't change our habits. We hear we ought to be a witness. It doesn't change our habits. We hear we ought to be spirit-filled, but we don't do anything about it. 
It's only the word of God acted upon, believed and obeyed that will bring us to maturity. And we're used to just listening and not doing anything about it. But I look back across my life and I can point out specific times when I got down either prostrate on my face or on my knees and I made deliberate choices that absolutely revolutionized my life. Because you see, when God speaks to your heart about something, as we're going to see tonight, when God speaks to your heart about something and you act on it and you give yourself to it and you embrace it and your purpose to do it, it simply gives the Holy Spirit a huge green light to go to work in your life and your soul. And he does it. And I could give you illustration after illustration. And I could recount to you biography after biography of godly men and godly women who made choices. And the primary choice, the primary choice is abandonment. Abandonment. Death to self. Absolute, total, unequivocal surrender to his lordship. Lord, I will do anything you want me to do. All I am and all I have and all I will ever be is totally yours. At the foot of the cross, do with me as you will. No matter what it is, I will not dicker or bargain. And the way I've said it to others is take a blank sheet of paper, sign your name at the bottom, and say, God, whatever you want, fill in the top. I am wholly yours. Those are the only people that are really going to lay up treasure in heaven that they will enjoy forever and ever. And when we stand before him, if we have been faithful that way on the earth, we will be so delighted with the reward that is ours to have forever and ever. But if we've not done that and we've not been faithful and we stand before him, all we'll be able to think about is I missed it. I missed it. And there's a verse in Revelation that speaks about God wiping away all tears. I can't verify that this is the correct interpretation, but a man that both Mike Griffin and I knew, Leonard Ravenhill, says in one of his books, could it be that God's going to wipe away tears after death because at the judgment seat we will realize what we had not done that we should have done? We're talking about eternal issues. When you walk into my house, you come in the front door, there's, a, there's an entrance hallway, and the living room's right to the left, and right there on the bookcase is a beautiful, beautiful sign that my wife had made for my birthday. It's in gold letters, and it says, Eternity. Eternity. And Little Raven, who used to, say, used to say, are you doing everything with eternity in view? And the old timers only had two dates on their calendar, today and that day. They live today for that day. 
And in my daughter's kitchen, she lost a son at the age of five to cancer. It was a very difficult time. She went through a divorce at the same time. Deeply, deeply painful to to us as mom and dad and to her. Deeply, deeply painful. But when her life sort of straightened out, she was married to a, 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 a Christian. And her life was sort of back to normal after such a traumatic time in her life. She put a big red E above her kitchen sink. To remind her, even this life now, without the trauma of a son dying of cancer, even this life, I must keep eternity in view. Well, let's continue tonight and look about this glorious God. The foundation is to know Him. Once you know Him, you're established. You're established. And your goal is to keep on knowing him better and better and better. It's the anchor of your soul. It's the delight of your life. It's the joy of your salvation. And as he evermore shows you more glimpses of himself, it delights you that much more. Two revelations about God in the Bible that we're going to look at tonight in addition to what we've already seen, that he's a person and the character that he has and how he behaves. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, you don't need to turn there. I'm going to give you a scripture in just a moment. But in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, familiar verses by Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple Sovereign God is exalted. A simple statement, a simple truth that we see right through the word of God. Sovereign God is exalted. He created it all. He rules it all. He reigns over it all. He is exalted. There is nothing else like him. There is no close second God is exalted over everything there is. The word says, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't care whether it is uh, Hirohito or whether it's Mussolini or whether it's Hitler or whether it's Ahmadinejad. There will come a day when every single knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord God is exalted. He is sovereign God. And he's exalted. Now, if you look in your Bible at Isaiah chapter 57. Isaiah chapter 57. Verse 15. This is another scripture that's going to show us the same thing. Isaiah 57, verse 15. The first half of the verse. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. God is is exalted. 
in the high and holy place. He is above all else. He inhabits eternity. He has no beginning and no end. We cannot comprehend that with finite minds. We have a finite mind. We live in a time capsule. We live in limited space. Not so for God. All the universe, 15 to 20 billion light years out yonder, traveling the speed of light for 15 or 10 billion or 20 billion years. All of that space is a speck, as it were, in the hands of God. When we die, we step outside this time capsule. And so he inhabits eternity. His name is holy. His character is holy. That means two things. Number one, holy means set apart. He says in Isaiah 40, to what will you compare me? Rhetorical question. There is nothing to which I can compare God. There is nothing. Nothing even comes close. He is totally holy other than what anything is that we know. Totally different. Holy other. But the second meaning of the word holy is there is no shadow of turning in him. There is no darkness in him at all. There is no evil in God. He's absolutely pure. If I live in Louisiana, if I have a glass of pure water, purified seven times, and I take an eyedropper of swamp water, just one drop of swamp water, and put it in that water, the whole glass is polluted. And if I gave it to you to drink, would you drink it? Good. Wise boy. You see, there is no impurity in God. He is absolutely pure and holy. His name, his character is holy. Now, where does he dwell? God himself speaks. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. Let me give you some scriptures. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, the angelic beings were there in the very immediate presence of God. Listen to this. These angels had never, ever sinned. There was no stain in them. These were created beings. And yet, in the very immediate presence of God, God is so brilliantly holy. These angelic beings had six wings. And with two wings, they covered their face. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they flew. And one cried to the others, Holy, holy, holy. All they could say in the very immediate presence of God was holy, holy, holy. They didn't say love, love, love. They didn't say mercy, mercy, mercy. So brilliantly pure, so bright is His glory. All they could say, covering their faces and covering their feet, holy, holy. Holy. 
when John the Apostle saw the revelation of the Lord Jesus, he fell at his feet as one dead. First Kings chapter 8, verse 27, he says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. Revelation 21, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And so God dwells in the high and holy place, and in his immediate presence, all the angelic beings could say, There's a second place where God dwells. This is absolutely, utterly important for us as his children. If you look at that verse. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Folks, that's utterly crucial to understand that. I believe, dear ones, that one of the reasons we do not experience the presence of God in our churches is because we're so full of pride. We're not contrite. We're not broken. After David sinned with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed on the front lines of battle, he wrote Psalm 51 after Nathan had confronted him. And he says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. The word of God says he resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So there are two places where God dwells. He dwells in the high and holy place. Exalted. But he dwells with those who are contrite and lowly. And you see, for the contrite and the lowly, he makes his presence known. He entrusts his presence to that kind of person. James 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's also in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 5. Psalm 138 verse 6 says, For though the Lord is high, He regards the lowly, but the haughty He knows from afar. Matthew chapter 5 verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are they that mourn. Why would He say poor in spirit and mourn? Because when I see what I am in his presence, I mourn over what I am apart from him. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans, the seventh chapter, 
14 through 21. Towards the end of that, he says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Wretched man that I am. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He saw himself. He tried to get rid of the sin of covetousness. And he tried and tried and tried and he couldn't. He wanted to live a righteous life, but he kept failing. And finally, he learned the lesson that God wanted him to learn. And that is, apart from Jesus Christ, you are absolutely wretched, miserable. And he cried out, and you can almost hear the pathos in his voice. Oh, wretched man that I am! He wanted to obey God's law. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? He had come to understand that in his flesh dwelt no good thing. And it could have very well been a picture that came from a foreign army that when they killed somebody, what they did was they chained a corpse to the man who was the criminal. And wherever that man went was this decaying corpse, face to face, hand to hand, foot to foot. And the decaying corpse would eventually kill the criminal. And John MacArthur points out that might have been the picture that Paul began to realize that attached to him his ugliness of flesh was like a dead corpse. Who shall deliver me? And he realized, thank God through Jesus Christ. Folks, I tell you, the more you see the Lord Jesus in his beauty and the clearer you see yourself, the more you will despise your flesh in all of its ugliness. One man saw it. He didn't say, God, forgive me my sins. He said, oh God, I'm nothing but sin. We mourn over it. And folks, we never get beyond that. The Beatitudes are a description of what a Christian is. It's a description of Christian experience. We have to live aware that we're poor in spirit. We have to live mourning whenever we offend God by sin and selfishness and pride that lurks within. It's a description of what we walk through as God's children. He revives the spirit and the heart of the lowly. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's pious reverence for God's word. Now we come to the second part. God dwells in the high and holy place. He dwells with the lowly and the contrite. I want you to see why. Sovereign God, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, the ruler of the universe is humble. Sovereign God is humble. 
the God who's merciful and gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, is also humble. You might say in your heart and mind, well, I have a hard time with that. Well, let me show it to you in the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. O-N-E, one. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus said, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 2, verse 9 says, For in him, Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All that God is in character was in Jesus Christ bodily. That means two things, folks. The first thing, it means there is nothing about sovereign God that was not in Jesus Christ. And it means, secondly, there is nothing in Jesus Christ that was not in sovereign God. Everything that Creator God is was in Christ bodily. Jesus was the full expression of the Father. When you watch the Lord Jesus walk across the pages of the Gospels, you're watching what God is like. That's what He came to do. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Thomas, have I been so long time with you and you've not known me? You see, Jesus Christ looked like a human being, and He was. We're going to see this tomorrow night. He was fully human. Fully human. He chose to live fully as a human. Jesus did not perform the miracles. Acts 2.22 says, God performed them through Him. He said, I, the Son of Man, can do nothing of Myself. I can only do what the Father shows me to do. So when He raised Lazarus from the dead, it was the Father through Him. When He touched blind Bartimaeus, it was the Father through Him. He said the Son of Man can do nothing of Himself. He was wholly dependent on His Father because He chose to live fully as a human being and not use His divine powers. And so as a human being dwelt within by all that Father God is, he lived in absolute dependence on the Father, not using his own power, but only using the power or living by the power of the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that resides in us is how Jesus chose to live. Otherwise, he could not identify with us and we could not identify with him. There is one place where the Lord Jesus spoke about his own heart. Listen to this. If he and the Father are one, and all that the Father was, he is, and he was the indwelling of all the Father's fullness, the one place if he spoke of his own heart was, 
He said in Matthew, For I am meek and lowly in heart. It's the only place he spoke of his own heart. He says, I am lowly in heart. I am lowly in heart. I am meek. He's saying, Sovereign God is humble. This is why the only ground where you can meet God is the ground of humility. A humble, sovereign God will only meet those who come before him in humility. A proud human life cannot come before a sovereign, humble God. He resists the proud because it's absolutely contrary to who he is. How can we know if there is pride in our heart? If you want to cover your sin instead of confess it, name it by its ugly, awful, dirty name. It's because of pride. If you are unforgiving towards someone who hurt you, there's pride in your heart. If you have resentment and bitterness toward another, whether it's your wife, your husband, your brother, your sister, your mother, your dad, or another church member, if there is resentment and bitterness toward another, it's because of pride in your heart. If you cannot say to one, someone that you have offended, I was wrong, please forgive me. It's pride in your heart. If you cannot say to someone who asks you for your forgiveness, I forgive you, it's pride in your heart. You see, somebody might come up to me and say, Brother Jerry, I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And I say, oh, it's all right, just forget it. That's pride. Or, we're cool. That's pride. Jesus teaches us to say, please forgive me. Jesus teaches us to say, I forgive you. 
And so when somebody comes and says, I need you to forgive me, and you can look them square in the eye and say, I forgive you, that releases them. And that releases you. There's something powerful about that exchange. But you see, dear ones, sitting in our churches are people who've been offended or who have offended somebody else. And they don't go to one another and say, boy, I was wrong. I hurt you and I'm so sorry and I ask you to forgive me. I've had to ask my children to forgive me. I've had to ask my wife to forgive me. Many years ago, when my daughter was just about 12 years old, I corrected her very strongly and severely for something before I was going to go preach a revival meeting, just like this. And I got to the church, and I was going to pray with the pastor, and the Holy Spirit put his finger right on my heart and said, you corrected your daughter as if she knew better when you had never taught her better. I was holding her responsible for something she didn't know. And I asked the pastor, we didn't have cell phones in those years. This was way back in the last century. And I said to the pastor, can I use your church phone? I went to the church phone and I called up my house where we lived at the retreat center. And I said, to my wife, I need to speak with Lauren. She said, she's in the bathtub taking a bath. I told my wife what I had done. And I said, would you tell her? I'm so sorry. And I asked for her forgiveness. My heart was clear then. I want to tell you something. Before I go any farther, parentheses, it's no different for you than it is for me or Jared or Mike. People come to church on Sunday morning with sin dripping off of them, resentment. They've sinned against the They've never asked for forgiveness. They come in here and expect to worship. That's a joke. They're not going to worship. They're going to go through a service. They're not going to worship. Because the word of God says, how do you come before God? Clean hands and a pure heart. You don't come with sin residing in you. You come with a clear conscience. Clean hands and a pure heart. Then you're ready to worship. I preached the service that night, and when I got home, there was a note on my pillow. It says, Daddy, I forgive you, and I love you, Laura. Sin is serious. Pride is our number one enemy. And we have to make deliberate choices against pride if we're going to walk with God. Otherwise, we continue with unclean hands, impure hearts, and pride ruling our souls. If you want recognition for something good you've done, if you want attention from others, 
pride. We do what we do for the glory of God, not for recognition by others. Paul said, if I were a men pleaser, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. If I want approval and recognition by men, it's pride. If I walk in humility, I just want to look at the Lord Jesus and know that I'm pleasing him. If you're humiliated before others and become offended so that you defend yourself or want to defend yourself or vindicate yourself or retaliate, it's pride. The Lord Jesus never was never vindicated himself. He never defended himself and he never sought to retaliate. He walked in humility. How can we be proud before a humble, loving Savior? Humility comes from two sources. First, I need a clear heart vision of who God is. Someone said, he who sees who God is cannot be proud. He who sees what he is cannot help but be humble. I need to know what God is like and with my heart behold him. And secondly, I need to see continually that apart from him, I am wretched, wretched, wretched apart from him and if I have a clear vision of the beauty of God and how I still fall short of his glory then that works humility into my soul God's word in 1 Peter 5 6 says humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Humble yourselves. Paul wrote, clothe yourself with humility. That's what I am to do. That's what I am to do. We must understand what God will do and what I'm to do. It is not God's business to humble me. It's my business to humble myself under the mighty hand of God. And if I want to know him, enjoy him, enjoy the fullness of his love, enjoy the fullness of his joy, enjoy the fullness of his peace, if I want to know him and enjoy him and know his presence individually and as a church, then I need to humble myself before him. Because only Humble people can meet a humble, sovereign God. God dwells in the high and holy place. But also with the lowly. 
and the contrite. Is that your life? Is that your church? That's what God wants. Would you come lead your people in prayer?